This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part two of five of Professor Hanko's series, God's Everlasting Covenant of Grace. I must admit that some of the material which we're going to be discussing tonight is a little bit difficult. I'm going to try to make it as clear as I possibly can, but I invite you to ask questions. And if your sole question is this, Prof, I don't understand what you're talking about, that is good too, and I'll give it another try. So please feel free to do that. And uh, it would be a sore disappointment to me after putting forth some effort to make the material clear, you went away without clearly understanding what I was saying. The Lord, of course, does all things in his wisdom, and we are never in any kind of a position to criticize the Lord. Nevertheless, I have a certain regret, and that regret is this, that Reverend Hooksema, in the course of his lifetime, never had an opportunity to write one book in which he would develop from beginning to end what he considered to be the biblical doctrine of God's everlasting covenant of grace. He began his discussion of that, as I mentioned last time, as early as 1923 in his book, Sin and Grace. But he was a busy man, of course. He was a pastor of a 500-plus family congregation. He was radio pastor. He was author. He was professor in the seminary, and he did not have the leisure or the opportunity to sit down and write one book on the doctrine of the covenant. He probably could not have done that anyway because he developed his doctrine of the covenant over the years. And probably the richest period of the development of the doctrine of the covenant for Reverend Hooksma was the period embracing the schism of 1953. It was the doctrine of the covenant, after all, that in 1953 came under bitter attack. And if it had not been for the Lord's gracious preservation of the Protestant Reformed churches, we would have lost under the pressure of heresies, that one doctrine which is uniquely the heritage of our churches. That controversy was a great stimulus, however, for Reverend Hooksema to do a lot of developing. The result of this process of developing the doctrine of the covenant over many years means that one must search through many of his writings 
in order to find his teachings concerning various aspects of the covenant. He himself said toward the end of his life that there was one area in which he had not had time to develop his ideas, and that was in the area of the place of Christ and the place of the Spirit of Christ in the work of God in establishing his covenant with his people. In a way, he left it to those who followed him to do that. He mentioned that more than once in the years in which I was in seminary. I recall him saying in so many words, you men have to have something to do too. And he referred particularly to the subject which we are going to address this evening. I don't claim, however, to be one who has developed this doctrine beyond what he has said. At the time I wrote the book, For Thy Truth's Sake, I combed his writings thoroughly in order to glean from them every scrap of information that I could possibly find on this truth of Christ as the head of the covenant. And it is a kind of an organization of his many scattered ideas which I bring to you tonight. The place of Christ in the covenant follows almost of itself from the idea that God is in himself a covenant God. We talked about that last week briefly. God is in his nature triune three in person and one in essence. And it is both the unity of the divine essence and the trinity of the divine persons which makes God's life that he lives in his own essence the life of a covenant. He has fellowship with himself. That fellowship is between the three persons of the Holy Trinity united by a bond of unity of essence. It is God's eternal purpose to reveal himself and to reveal himself in all the riches and blessedness of his divine being. He reveals himself as a covenant God Revelation tells us that God is a covenant God. However, there's one point which needs to be made at this point in our development of the doctrine, and that is this. When God reveals himself as a covenant God, he reveals himself, first of all, only to his people, you, will, you who were here when we talked about the doctrine of revelation will recall that I was quite insistent on the fact that all of revelation is only ever to the elect. There is no revelation to the reprobate, no revelation to the unbeliever. So it is with the doctrine of the covenant. 
God reveals himself as a covenant God only to the elect. In the second place, God reveals himself as a covenant God through Christ. All revelation is through Christ. Whether it be God's speech in the creation or whether it be God's speech in in sacred scripture, all God's revelation is through Christ. It is also true that God reveals himself as a covenant God through Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the main theme of what I have to say tonight. The third point is, however, that when God reveals himself through Christ to his elect people alone, he reveals himself in such a way that he takes his people into his own triune covenant life that he lives in himself. What I mean to say is this. God, when he reveals that he is a covenant God and makes himself known as a covenant God to his people, he does not simply convey to them a certain amount of information concerning himself, which information you find on the pages of Scripture. That's not revelation in the deepest and most profound sense of the word. It's true, of course, that all that God has to say concerning himself as a covenant God is on the pages of Scripture. But when God makes that revelation a living reality in the lives of the people of God, he makes that revelation real to them so that he takes them into his own covenant life that he lives as a triune covenant God. I want to illustrate that if I can because I think that's an extraordinarily important point and I'm not sure you appreciate the the amazing wonder and beauty of that. This is an illustration which I have been wont to use over the years and some of you may have heard it before. Let us imagine a family of a husband and a wife and two children. They live in a very beautiful home. They have plenty to eat. They have nice clothes to wear. They have all their needs abundantly supplied. Supposing that this family was walking down Madison Avenue in Chicago, which is the heart of the ghetto in downtown Chicago, and the four of them passing along on the sidewalk saw sitting on the curb a bereft, forsaken orphan girl who was abandoned by her parents, who lived off the streets, who was dirty, unkempt, covered with sores, with hair full of lice, swollen belly because of lack of proper nourishment, clothing in rags, a despicable and ugly 
creature from every point of view. Supposing this family took pity on this little girl and decided to tell her about what it was like really to have a home where there was love and happiness and joy and plenty to eat and nice clothes to wear. That family could, of course, take that little girl and sit with her on a park bench and describe to her all the aspects of their life together as a family, as much as they possibly could to convey to this little orphan girl what it was like to have a home, something which this little forsaken and abandoned girl did not have. That wouldn't mean very much, would it? In fact, the girl would have a great deal of difficulty even understanding what they were talking about because they were talking about things so utterly foreign to her that she could not even picture them in her mind. But supposing that in order to make known to this little girl what it was like to have a home where there was unity and love and happiness and peace, they took this little girl with them to their home and gave her a bath and put salve on her sores and combed the lice out of her hair and did everything they could to make her feel at home in the family surrounded by their love, constantly reminded of the fact that she was with this family and receiving what the other children in the family had become accustomed to, she would gradually, over the course of time, realize that she herself, abandoned, an orphan, was now really a part of a family that would take a while when she saw her bedroom nicely painted with a beautiful bedspread on the bed and heard the father and mother say to her, this is your room for you to sleep in and for you to enjoy. And when she sat at the table with the family and when she went shopping with the mother in the home and the mother bought her frilly dresses, and when every day the family said to her, you're a part of this family, you're one of our children, this is your brother and this is your sister, first, of course, she would say, I can't believe it. it why should they have chosen me of all the derelicts that are roaming the alleys of the inner city of Chicago? Is it a dream? This is too good to be true. But gradually, as she was surrounded by the love of the family and caught up in that love, she would become persuaded in her own soul. Yes, she's a part 
of the family, and she would know what family life was like, not now because someone had simply told her about it, but because she personally enjoyed all the blessedness and happiness and unity and love of being a part of a family. This is what it means that God establishes his covenant with us and reveals himself as a covenant God. He doesn't simply tell us about the kind of life he lives in himself, but he takes us into his own triune covenant life. There is a passage in 2 Peter 1. I personally have never dared to preach on it because I am not at all certain of what it means. That is, if it were not in the Bible, I, I, I would have difficulty believing what it says. I refer to verse 4, verse 3, 2 really. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, the knowledge of him whereby are given unto us an exceeding great and are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these and here comes the expression that sort of overwhelms me that by these that is these precious promises ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. The infinitely blessed, eternally perfect, everlastingly holy, divine nature. We become partakers of it. Perhaps in the sense that this little derelict girl of whom I was speaking becomes a partaker of all the blessedness and joy and love of a family. God is a family God in his own divine being. He takes us into the family. the Trinity. That's the covenant. How does he do that? That's possible only through Christ. Obviously it's not possible that we become partakers of the Trinity as God is in himself the eternally blessed God, but through Christ, he makes us partakers 
of the divine nature. There are some texts in the Bible that are, to say the least, puzzling and quite astounding. And to some of those texts, I want to call your attention. As you know, there was an Old Testament revelation of Christ in the angel of Jehovah. And in that Old Testament revelation of Christ in the angel of Jehovah, the outstanding feature of it is the divinity of the angel of Jehovah. When Jacob, for example, wrestled with the angel at the shore of the brook Jabbok, it dawned on him in the course of the wrestling match that he was wrestling with the divinity, with God. He named the place, after all, the face of God. The face of God. I have seen God face to face, and my life has been spared. That was the angel with whom he wrestled. There is a text in connection with the destruction of Sodom that I want to have you notice. It's found in chapter 19, verse 24. You recall how God and two angels came to visit Abraham in the plains of Mamre, and Abraham was promised a son. Subsequent to that, God revealed to Abraham his intention to destroy Sodom, and then went his way to Sodom and rescued Lot and his two daughters from the city. In chapter 19, verse 24, when you read of the actual destruction of Sodom, this text appears in the Scriptures. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. How do you explain that? The Lord was on earth and the Lord was in heaven. And at the prayer of the Lord on earth, the Lord in heaven rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom. Text says that. The Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The only explanation for that can be that God himself, the triune God, 
was in heaven. And that the angel of Jehovah, who had rescued Lot from Sodom, was also Jehovah here on earth, who had led Lot and his two daughters to safety. That's a distinction which appears again and again in the scriptures. It appears, for example, in Proverbs 8, in that amazing chapter. Proverbs chapter 8. I wish that either tonight for your devotions before you go to bed, or tomorrow morning at your devotions, you read Proverbs 8. It's one of the most beautiful and one of the most profound passages in the Scripture. I refer especially to verses 22 through 35. I'm not going to read the whole passage now. There's no time for that. But notice how the passage starts out. Wisdom is talking. You can learn that from the very beginning of the chapter. And here, beginning in verse 22, wisdom says some astounding things. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Who is that wisdom? If you read the whole chapter, you will discover, and read the book of Proverbs for that matter, you will discover that that's Christ. In fact, you can't even understand the book of Proverbs unless you take Proverbs 8 as your starting point. And remember that every time the book of Proverbs talks about wisdom, which it does all the time, it's talking about Christ. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, wherever the the earth was, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth and the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, and so on and so forth. And then if you go down a little ways and read these amazing things that wisdom claims for itself, in verse 30, wisdom says, Then I was with him, that is, when he appointed the foundations of the earth. I was by him, as one brought forth, brought up with him, and I was daily his delight Rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing always before him. Wisdom. The idea of the Hebrew there is 
wisdom was before the face of the triune God, eternally, eternally. As it were, playing before the face of the triune God, always the object of the triune God's attention and always the object of his love. That's Christ. The Dutch... I wish we had preserved Dutch among us. The Dutch, describing this and translating it, speaks of it as de spelende weisheit, the playing wisdom. Not playing in the sense in which a child plays, but playing in the sense of light playing on a wall as the light mixed with the shadows, dances about from here and there. So was Christ ever before the face of God. John 1 picks that up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, both at the same time. On the one hand, the word was, and here the Greek expresses just exactly what Proverbs 8 expresses, the word was before the face of God, so that God saw him and delighted in him. While at the same time, the word, John says, was God. He was himself divine as the angel of Jehovah as the angel that called down upon Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone from Jehovah in heaven. The angel on earth was also God. That means that scripture continuously makes a distinction between the triune God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I know pictures, diagrams, especially when we are dealing with things divine, are, are singularly unhelpful, but if I may just try to picture this for you for a moment. If we conceive of the Trinity in this way, as the Father, the first person, the Son, the second person, and the Holy Spirit, the third person. The relationship, as you know, is one of generation. The Father generates the Son. The Son is generated by the Father. And the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one of procession. It is in that relationship of generation and procession that the three persons of the Trinity live together in covenant fellowship. Augustine already, way back in the fifth century, used the expression that the Holy Spirit 
within the family of God, and it was a daring expression, was the kiss, the kiss between the Father and the Son, uniting them in the perfect love which belongs to the Trinity. Now, we're not going to get into that tonight. That's, those are the ABCs of the doctrine of the Trinity. What is of concern to me is that as God reveals himself as a covenant God, triune, living a covenant life in himself, he reveals himself through Christ. And the relationship between the triune God and Christ is one of generation. In other words, the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity, which is defined in terms of generation, is revealed to us by means of the generation of Christ by the triune God. Let me quote to you a well-known biblical passage which underscores exactly that truth. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary in Nazareth and announced that she was to be the mother of Christ, she was puzzled. How shall these things be, seeing I know not a man? And the answer of the angel, as you all know, is this. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, Christ. Because the power of the Most High, that is, not the power of the first person of the Trinity, but the power of the Most High, the triune God would come upon Mary and bring forth the Christ, that is, the second person of the Holy Trinity in our flesh. God in our flesh. Christ has as his Father the triune God. When Christ prayed, for example, on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was praying to the triune God. You mustn't say that the second person was praying to the, third per, to the first person, and leave the Holy Spirit altogether out of the picture, that's impossible. When Christ said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he was praying as the Christ to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The relationship in which he lived to the triune God was always a relationship of the triune God as Father, the Father of Jesus Christ, as the revelation of that relationship in the Trinity. Now, very briefly, 
because that is a subject for a little later, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So you have to carry this line down here. There's, a, there's all kinds of evidence of that in Scripture, but there's one outstanding passage in the Gospel according to John, which you might want to look up. You recall how in John 14, 15, and 16, no less than five times does Christ talk about the Comforter, who is the Spirit of truth, which he will give to the church. But notice what he says about that in John 15, verses 26 and 27. Especially 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, is given to Christ at the time of his ascension. We'll come to that a little bit more in just a moment. But you recall how Peter, for example, on, the, on Pentecost, in his marvelous Pentecost sermon, speaks of Christ's ascension. And having ascended to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which ye now see and hear, Peter says. He received as the ascended Lord the Spirit, which he pours out upon the church, so that the Holy Spirit, who in this Trinity proceeds from Father and Son, is given to Christ, proceeding now from the triune God through Christ to the church as the spirit of truth to reveal to the church the truth. Marvelous, marvelous. I think maybe we might be able to understand and appreciate this just a bit more if we take a look at another aspect of it, and I'd like to have you turn, first of all, in your Bibles to Psalm 2. You all know Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And so on and so forth. When all the heathen rage against God and against his Christ, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Why? Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Now you all know, of course, that that's a reference to David historically. A reference to the fact that God begat David and begat him as his own son to sit on the holy hill of Zion in order that through him 
the enemies of God might be defeated. Nevertheless, we all know too that that's a prophecy of Christ. What might surprise you is how that was fulfilled in Christ. And I ask you to turn now to Acts 13. Acts 13. Paul is preaching on his first missionary journey in the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia. And in the synagogue of the Jews in Antioch, he was preaching Christ. Now notice what he says. Let's begin reading with verse 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now I call your attention to the fact that what Paul is saying here to the Jews in the synagogue of Antioch is that Psalm 2 was fulfilled when God raised Christ from the dead, from the garden of Joseph of Arimathea. That's when Psalm 2 was fulfilled. God said at the time of the resurrection, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And Christ arose from the dead. Now that comes as something of a surprise. We don't usually think of Psalm 2 as being fulfilled at the time of the resurrection. Nevertheless, that's also the main idea of Psalm 89. And let's take a look at that a moment, the one we just sang together, Psalm 89. And by all means, if you get a chance this week, read Psalm 89. We're going to be talking about that psalm uh, on more than one occasion. Now, again, historically, of course, the psalm is talking about David. Verse 20, I have found David my servant with my holy oil, have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And so on. As a matter of fact, this is the establishment of the covenant with David. But as the psalm goes on, it becomes clear that Christ is the one to whom the psalm refers. Notice, say, for example, 24, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, 
And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God. Notice the triune God. And the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him, and so on. That's Christ. God establishes his covenant with Christ, typically with David. Now the question we face is this. How is it possible that Psalm 2 was fulfilled at the time of Christ's resurrection. And Psalm 89, at the time of Christ's ascension. How is that possible? The answer to that question is, and now I must talk about something that always moves me deeply to the depths of my soul. That's possible because of the nature of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ all his life long bore the wrath of God and bore the wrath of God in its fullest intensity on the cross. The wrath of God which our Savior bore was the abandonment of Christ by God. God abandoned Christ to hell. That's what hell is. I want nothing to do with you, God said to Christ. I don't want you in heaven, and I don't want you on my earth. I'll put you on a cross where you hang halfway between the two. As far as I'm concerned, you're an outcast. You're, you're a pariah. There's no room in all my creation for you. I whom you have called Father, I abandon you. I don't want you anymore. I don't want you as my son. You're out of my house. The only place fit for you is hell. That was the cross. There is a good reason, you know, why at that darkest moment of Christ's suffering on Calvary, he did not dare to call God his Father. Father, Forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And when it was all over, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But in that awful blackness of abandonment in hell, all he could say was, my God. He didn't dare call God his father. The consciousness of God as his father was obliterated by the horror of God's wrath and fury against him. For your sins and for my sins, that's what's so profoundly moving about it all. But because he bore what we should have bore, he became no longer a son in God's house. You understand that? I know there is here the most profound mystery. At the time of Christ's baptism, God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's my son. And again, shortly before Christ went to the cross, when those wicked, unbelieving, blasphemous Jews shrugged it off, oh, it thundered, God had testified again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But on that moment on the cross, God said, you're not my son. I don't want you. Go away. Far away as you can. I want no part of you at all. Now you say, how can that be? The only way that can be, of course, is because the wrath of God was so intense and so awful that it obliterated completely from the consciousness of our Lord that relationship, that glorious relationship of father and son that existed between God and Christ was gone. Behind the awful smoke of hell and behind the blackness of Christ's abandonment it must have been that in heaven where even the angels bit their tongues and knew not what to say, that God still said at that moment, probably, if I may put it that way, meaning it far more than he had ever meant it, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And God was never so pleased with Christ as at that moment when Christ endured the anguish of hell. But Christ didn't know it. He could not sing, although it was the theme song of his life. The loving kindness of my God is more than life to me. More than life. That's why... He had said to his disciples, Now is my soul troubled, even unto death. The horror of the cross almost kills me right now. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. 
For this reason I came into this hour. And then finally that glorious total resignation that came from the soul of Christ. Father, glorify thy name. That's all that counts. But in that moment of total abandonment, he didn't know any longer the love of his father. It was swallowed up in wrath. He didn't know the blessed relationship that was more than life to him. It was gone. Hell was too dark. The whirlpool of the wrath of God was too awful. My God. Oh yes, my God. Because Christ loved God even then. It was as if Christ said, even if I am no longer thy son, even if thou hast abandoned me forever, I love thee, O oh my God. I love thee with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. I come to do thy will, O oh God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. But oh, the awfulness of God turning his back on his son. That's the cross. And it's against that background, you see, that Psalm 2 says in the resurrection, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Hell is over. The suffering of the abandonment of the cross was forever gone, and Christ is exalted at the right hand of God as God's eternal son and given the rule of the nations for the sake of the church. That's how Psalm 2 was fulfilled in the resurrection. It's the fulfillment of that awful cross. And now put that, if I may say that, put that on the level of your own personal understanding. He did that for us. He did that for you. He did that for me. God did that. He was God. That's what Paul says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was doing that to God in our flesh, bearing the weight of our sin and our guilt. We who have been freely, freely, chosen to be God's people. When you gaze into the depths of the abyss and you stand there and shudder and say, this is for me, then you begin to understand what it means that God established his covenant with Christ. Now, it's for that reason you see that, and you can look at this in your outline, I have it there somewhere, 
that Christ is called the surety of the covenant. One place in Scripture, Hebrews, Christ is called the surety of the covenant. What is it? Hebrews 7, 22. If you look up that passage in, in Hebrews 7, then you will discover that Christ is called the surety of the covenant in the context of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek. I can't go into that all tonight, but Melchizedek is, as you know, a unique figure in the Old Testament scriptures because he's the only individual in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures who was at the same time priest and king. He was king of Jerusalem, the city of peace. He was priest of the Most High God. He was a greater man than Abraham because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek when he returned from the slaughter of the kings. He was a greater man than Abraham because he had that unique position of being priest-king. A priest could be a prophet and in fact was always a prophet. A king could be a prophet and was in fact always a prophet. But no one ever might be priest and king. Uzziah, king of Judah, tried it. King of Judah. And he thought he could offer incense in the tabernacle, which was the work of the priests. And he was struck with leprosy and driven out of the temple. Christ is priest-king. In other words, God, when he begets his son through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and exalts him at his own right hand, and now scripture makes no distinction between the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Christ. It's all one great, grand, glorious glorification of the Lord of glory. God makes him priest king. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. And that's the thrust of Hebrews 7. As priest king, he is the surety of the covenant, the guarantee of the covenant. You know... It infuriates me that the liberated do not want Christ to have a place in the covenant. They don't want him to be the surety of the covenant. They don't want him to be the mediator of the covenant. They don't want the covenant to be established through Christ. That infuriates me. All is done through Christ. The glorious exaltation of Christ is what it's all about. And because of what he did and his exaltation in heaven, 
Don't you understand? The covenant is guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. For all those who belong to Christ. Forever and ever and ever. World without end. If he wasn't the guarantee of the covenant... How in the wide world would the covenant ever be a reality with us, with all our sin, with all our failure, with all our unfaithfulness, with all our adultery? He's the guarantee because of his work and because he's now king-priest forever at God's right hand. That's the surety of the covenant. He is the mediator, Hebrew says, the mediator of the covenant. You understand what that means, do you not? If a husband and wife don't get along together and they go to the divorce courts and the, the judge happens to be one who doesn't like divorce very well, then he calls in a mediator and he says to the mediator, now see if you can bring these two people together so that they can stay married. And so the mediator hears his side of the story and hears her side of the story and he says to him, you better compromise in this respect and shape up a little bit. And he says to her, you better give in on this point and shape up a little bit and if you're both willing to do this, I can bring you back together and bring about reconciliation. And that's the way Christ as mediator is often presented. God is angry with us and we're angry with God. And Christ comes along and he placates the anger of God and he dies for us. And so he brings God and us together by interceding with God for us and pleading with God for us and taking away God's wrath and so on and so forth. That's not so. Christ is God's mediator. We don't have a side of the story. We don't have anything to say about it all. We don't have any rights. We don't have any claims. We don't have to say to the mediator, yes, but hear my side of the story once about this business of God and us being at war together. We don't, what, what side of the story do you and I have? Except that when God endowed us with rich and blessed gifts, we squandered them and chose to be an ally of Satan. That's our story. So because we don't have a side, God becomes his own mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God loved his people with an eternal love. God saw the hopelessness of their sin and guilt and death. God said, I will through Christ bring my people to me through a mediator who is not only my mediator, but who is God himself in man's flesh. And so we have Jesus Christ as the mediator whom God gives to us graciously and through him and his work says to you and me, you are my children. I love you. 
I will take you into my family through Jesus Christ. That's the covenant of grace and Christ's place in it. I want to demonstrate that with an illustration from the Old Testament, but our time is up and that will have to wait till next time. So we will begin our discussion next week, the Lord's willing, the Lord willing with that subject, and go on into God's covenant with his people. I hope that if you, if you have any questions, it's too late to ask questions. Write them down, will you? If you have any questions on any of this, and you may ask them next week, and I'll try to answer them. But don't you see how this, that to me is so, so beautiful, how all of this becomes a living reality through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and his exaltation, and then on Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. Okay, let's rise and sing 252, the four stanzas, in conclusion, and then you may be seated after we sing, and I'll close with prayer, and we'll have something to drink. Heavenly Father, we come unto thee, who art the one great glorious God, who livest in thyself a life of infinite perfection and blessedness, in perfect, unblemished covenant fellowship.
and who hast revealed the riches of that covenant fellowship which thou dost live in thyself by taking thy people into thy own covenant life, by taking us into that covenant life through Jesus Christ, who took our place on Calvary and who was raised in power and might from the dead, and who is now at thy right hand, our glorious Christ, the surety and mediator of the covenant, in whom we can draw nigh unto thee. Lord, the riches of thy salvation are great and beyond compare. When we ponder them, all we can do is fall on our knees and worship and praise and bless thy holy name. When we think of how unworthy we are, how we were chosen from eternity without any merit or value in us, but according to thy own sovereign good pleasure, we are dazzled by the greatness of thy mercy and love. May we walk in the consciousness of it as thankful sons and daughters in the family of God, praising and blessing thee. What we have done amiss tonight, forgive. What has been thy word, bless to our hearts. And give us an appreciation for our rich and glorious heritage. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.